0: Spring Break 1990 I got invited by Amnesty International to go to Spring Break in Daytona and talk about human rights with college students on spring break. I took away a really interesting religious lesson from that experience that had nothing to do with avoiding the debauchery of spring break but connected rather to my catholic upbringing. I met a guy there who was also doing the spring break human rights Presence with us, this guy named Rich, and his parents were from Puerto Rico, and he lived in Florida and was there as part of the host team for the college students from around the country who went down. And one night over dinner, he starts telling a story of going to Puerto Rico when he was younger to stay with his grandparents, who spoke no English and lived in a village where very little English was spoken, just Spanish. And he grew up Catholic, and his parents made him go to confession. And his grandmother made him go every week. And he realized about three or four weeks in that the priest spoke no English whatsoever. And so he confessed to the sins of mankind. He made up murders and kidnappings and bank heists and all kinds of stuff. And although I was already at a point in my life where I had realized that all the rules of the Catholic Church that I was brought up with weren't the way to salvation or heaven or holiness, that struck me in such an emotional way, like, God, all these rules are really silly. (laughs) And it it gave me a great preparation, that moment, when I finally got to divinity school. And I encountered, in a similar way that really grabbed me, this guy called St. Paul, who wrote a lot of the things that are in the New Testament. And I came to realize that, wow, there's kind of a real dividing line here. When he writes about what he calls grace after this conversion experience he has. And uh, I want to start there because I think this is a a turning point, at least in the West, of how we think about the spiritual and the religious and grace. And a couple quick things about this guy, St. Paul, because he is often called the source of patriarchy in Christianity and the source of anti Semitism in Christianity. And both of these things I don't think are are quite true because there's a lot more to him. And I think he's a really interesting person to study. He was a very serious Torah-observing Jew from Asia Minor. And of the 13 writings attributed to him, modern scholars will now argue he only actually wrote six of them. Uh, Sorry, seven of them. And it's in the six he didn't write that you find a lot of the stuff that people will find a really dislike about him. Um, For example, women shouldn't speak in church, not from one of his authentic letters. And you'll also find things that he did write are either missed or misinterpreted due to our lack of his context. You know, one of the things he does write is there is neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, male nor female, all are one. Like most of those early Jesus groups, he was a radical inclusivist. And then you get things like, well, women should cover their heads all the time in church. But remember that it was a custom f- to cover your head when lighting candles for the Sabbath. So he wasn't imposing something. He was saying make stuff holy all the time. And we miss stuff like that about him. So a little background before you turn, turn out anything we say about St. Paul. That he's not all bad. Like most people, he's got his good points too. And he's going around about 20 years after Jesus is dead, saying, all these Jesus-following Jewish people are really messed up. They're saying it's not as important to follow all these religious rules and practices we have in the Torah. And they're saying, you know, this guy's the Messiah, and this guy, like, well, he did work on the Sabbath. He healed people. That violates our rules. He hung out with all the ritually unclean people you can possibly imagine. That can't be good. So he's going around arguing against this new movement within his religion until one day. And this is what he says happened to him. And this is the quote from Galatians You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of my same age, for I was more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal Jesus to me that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. You'd almost go over it in passing. But what happens is he has this realization that, hey, maybe they've got something here. Maybe always just following the rules isn't what it's all about. Maybe lots of people who we think, are unclean and not good, are also okay. Forty to fifty years later, whoever writes the Acts of the Apostles really jazzes up his story. They have a blinding flash of light, and a voice asks him, why do you persecute me? And then Renaissance artists put him on a horse, falling off a horse. and It's like Humpty Dumpty, remember, right? That stuff wasn't in his story. He just said he had an insight. What happened to him? and he continues to write about this and tries and uses this term in all kinds of ways which I'm not going to get into but he has a moment of grace he has a moment of insight transformation revelation connection to a new idea a new perspective a new way of understanding that he hadn't had before these moments are not unique Moses sees a burning bush Buddha sits under a tree and gains enlightenment. Muhammad is told to recite what he hears in the quiet of a dark cave and recites the Quran. We all have these moments where out of the blue there's a connection, an understanding, a getting it that we didn't have before. And the one Paul had had a really important effect on the history of religion that's come down to us. In the letter to the Romans, he says that we are justified, by which he means made in right relationship to God, through our trust in God. The word in Greek he uses is pisteo, and we translate it faith, but what it means is trust, our trust in God. We are not made okay or holy or righteous because we follow all the rules, but because we trust God, or the experience of the divine, or the universe, however we understand it. And we trust that that understanding and experience is so, is true. This is a huge shift. The religion he grew up with was what we called full of retribution theology. If you do what God says and obey God's rules, you are blessed. If you don't do what God says and you disobey God's rules, you are cursed. And a lot of human religious thinking breaks that way. Even our common conception of karma, the song says it, it gets outside of karma, right? Our common conception of karma is, you know, somebody cuts me off in traffic and two miles down the road I see that car in an accident. You know, what goes around comes around. You, you get what you deserve. That's not karma. Poetic justice, maybe but not karma. Karma is the accumulation of your life's energy going in a certain direction that will have an influence on your next incarnation. But our common conception of karma is like you do the right thing, you get rewarded, you do the wrong thing, you're cursed. But if it all worked out that way, we'd all pretty much be doomed because all of us make enough mistakes every day to go into this column or that column. But the idea of grace is really different. St. Paul has this idea that he begins, and I think we've built on sense of, what if being holy, what if being sacred, a good person, isn't about following the rules or the standard practice? What if it's about trusting that the experience you have of life and beauty and connection and insight is all that's necessary? You're okay because God, however you want to conceive of that, accepts you as being okay just as you are. Done. And he drops a mic and he walks out. Actually, he writes a whole bit more stuff. And you can get into him very deeply, and he makes a lot of nuanced and complex arguments. But it's his basic shift I find so fascinating. Religion isn't about appeasing the gods or following the rules. The human spiritual experience is about trusting you are okay. You are beautiful, lovable, forgivable, just as good and divine as any god or gods and anyone or anything else. Trust that it's so. That's enough. That's what it's about. This is a huge shift. It doesn't give us license to do anything we want. I mean, it doesn't say all rules are bad. I'm pretty grateful myself that people tend to actually stop for the red signs and the red lights. The rules have a place. In fact, even in his own religion, Paul would say, yeah, don't just throw it all out the window, the Torah, because behaving a certain way, things you take on for yourself, for the rules, make you a certain kind of person. We learned this last Sunday about our environmental practices that if we don't reuse and recycle and reduce, we're not going to go to hell. We're not an evil person, but we're certainly not walking the talk. We're not the person we say we are. So developing those practices makes us a certain kind of person, and rules can be useful that way. But that's not the most important thing. In order to really be a person who engages taking on the practices for yourself, I think first we've got to get to that place where we're really okay with ourselves, that we're okay, we're holy, we're sacred, just as we are with all our stuff. And I think that's what happens when, as the Renaissance painters would have it, you get that moment of insight in the flashing light and you fall off your horse. This is not just a Christian framework in the West. Judaism has had its idea of wrestling with grace and how it looks at his rules, its rules with its reform movement and reconstructionist movement, and Buddhism itself is steeped in rules. You, if you ever spend time in a Buddhist monastery, they get enough rules that make canon law in the Catholic Church look like a couple of local ordinances, including getting whacked over the back with a stick if you fall asleep meditating. So now we have mindfulness as a widespread general practice it gone far beyond the bodhisattvas and the Buddhist temples. We've had this shift from the rules and the obligations being the center to the trust that we're holy being the center. It's an amazing shift. And I think one of its big implications, it has, it has as a mirror the shift from guilt to shame, Right? Guilt is, I've done something wrong. I've broken the rule. I haven't followed the practice. I've done it wrong. And we all do. In a way, I've got no problem with guilt. But what grace wants to hold up is, there's no place for shame. Shame is, you are someone wrong, not you've done something wrong. And grace says, there is no such thing, no such thing as someone wrong. That's huge. In fact, it's the underline of our entire Universalist tradition. There is no one you can be, no one you are. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your gender, your gender identity, your ethnic origin, your language, your political opinion, your sexuality, your religion, your emotional health, your physical health, your different or common ability, or any special challenges. You're okay, just the way you are. You're holy, sacred, and divine, just the way you are. As part of everything. Without grace, there is no universalism. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds sing Everybody's got a room in God's hotel. Everybody's got a room. You'll never see a sign hanging on the door saying there's no vacancies anymore. And that's what grace and universalism do. Everyone is in. One of our great proponents of universalism, Hosea Ballou, puts it this way, and this is a summary based on my friend Dan Harper. He says, Ballou argued, as finite creatures, human beings are incapable of offending an infinite God. Therefore, he rejected the orthodox argument that the death of Jesus was designed to appease an angry deity and replaced it with the idea that God is eternal love, and all that eternal love seeks is the happiness of humanity. It is not God who must be reconciled to human beings, but human beings who must be reconciled to this idea of God that we are from, embedded in, and part of love. One of the great expressions of grace and universalism that has come our way in contemporary times is Matthew Fox's creation spirituality. And he basically says to us, instead of seeing the world in terms of original sin... See it in terms of original blessing. Right from the beginning of the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures, God saw that it was good. Not God saw that it was depraved and sinful and horrible and wrong. Right from the beginning, grace is embedded in there. And our tradition in the West has ignored it most of the time for much of history. Instead of thinking of human beings as sinners, grace allows us to see human beings as free creatures who choose to create or destroy, to love or hate. The old way says suffering is the result of sin, but grace says suffering is just part of the cycle of life and death and rebirth and creation. The old ways say we must repent of our sins, but grace says We just need to seek the transformation that comes with learning and hurting and healing and growing. The old way says, obey God the Father, and develops patriarchy. But grace says, what's sacred is female and male, and God is mother and child and sister and brother. And equity and dignity and respect is where we find love and grace. grace over the years in various religious expressions has had a downside. If all i got to do is trust in God and I'm okay, well, it doesn't matter if I don't care about the environment or I have prejudices towards people because of the color of their skin or their sexual or gender expression. No, that's not okay. When we are confronted with that state of blessing the doll is good and accepted, it is our job to make sure that extends to everybody else. It's part of the reciprocal condition of grace. Grace is not just a blessing or favor from God. Some people have made it into a commodity itself, which goes back right into the old paradigm, that if you do a certain thing or behave a certain way or do what God wants, then you get God's grace. That's not how it works at all. If you have to earn it, it's not grace. This acceptance is a free gift, just naturally given and woven into the fabric of everything. Like Tillich says in our reading today, it's about being accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you, the name of which you do not know and maybe even can't name. So don't ask for the name. Don't try to do anything. Perhaps later you'll do a lot. Don't seek for anything. Don't perform any rituals. Don't intend anything. Just accept the fact you are accepted all we got to do is look at the news to see that our culture and the religion that gets embedded in it does not practice this. The great thing about this acceptance is that for each of us, usually when we finally realize it and internalize it, it comes at times that are unlooked for and unannounced. And in the end, I really can't describe grace to you. I can tell you stories, I can use metaphors, which is a clue grace is something sacred, divine, and real because you really can't explain it too well with words. You just have to feel it. For example, you walk into a church and you see a rainbow flag and you meet some people who ask you what pronouns they should use. You see rainbows in the sky outside an ICU room window as someone passes away. You walk into a prayer service on a retreat that prays with shades of purple and color and fabric And purple is your favorite color like it is mine, and Prince just died. Grace. You suddenly notice the way light cuts through the trees while you walk in the woods and illuminates about 17 different shades of green. And it mesmerizes you. Grace, as you round a bend on the morning run and find three different pairs of geese parents with gaggles of goslings. Grace is a friend getting in touch after many years to say, I'm sorry. Grace is holding your baby for the first time. Grace is watching Neil deGrasse Tyson resurrect Carl Sagan and talk about the wonders of the universe and then just going outside and looking up in perfect silence at the stars in their glory. Grace takes the core of human spirituality, trust, and brings it right up to the front where it should be. It makes human spirituality not about religion, about being bound together by certain practices and traditions, not what we believe as we have to give an assent to a dogma or a doctrine, but this just basic, spiritual, deep in the soul, can't explain trust that you are okay and the universe is as it is. My trust, my faith, is that there is a creative, sustaining, and transforming power at the heart of all that is. Some people call that God, spirit, evolution, wonder, love, whatever it is, it is full of grace, and I am bound to it in a way I can't fully express to you, even after 15 plus minutes. Grace makes nothing perfect. It doesn't guarantee me an afterlife or make all the details of my life just the way I'd like them right here and now. And sometimes I go days and hours and weeks and months and years without experiencing it on a consistent basis. And then it just seems to happen all the time. The world just seems to vibrate with blessing. St. Paul falls to the ground in a flash of light, And he thinks, huh, maybe those Jesus people were right. Everyone's good enough for God. No one offends God. God needs to punish nobody. And he experienced grace. And he started wrestling with it. And it's been a central argument in Western religion ever since. Some will tell you it's all evil, fallen, and sinful. And I'll tell you, it's all beautiful and blessing and gift. It's all grace. Grace comes when we realize that this existence can be arbitrary at times, but it's not malicious. Frederick Buchner said to people of faith and trust, welcome to the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Grace says, don't forget the beautiful part. And maybe grace is only a shift in perspective, a way of putting meaning on random coincidences and focusing on the random acts of kindness and the senseless acts of beauty instead of the hurt and the pain. But still, even so, it's a central, foundational, and important shift. Everyone's accepted. You, me, all of us just as we are with our good and our bad and our best and our worst and our attendant issues and our baggage and our self-doubts. We're all divine. Being human is sacred. And it may not be perfect, but it's all good. And so are we. And that, indeed, is a thought that changes the world.